guys, welcome back to another episode of Beckett's Babies. I'm Sarah. And I'm Sam. Welcome to another episode, you guys. We are so excited and we're happy to, uh, for you guys to join with us. And today we're going to be joined by the magnificent Ryan Oliveira, who we met in grad school. And Ryan is a playwright, songwriter, solo performer, and theatrical jack of all trades. He's very talented. So um, we're really excited to talk to him about playwriting. Aw, that's lovely, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. So, um, Ryan, we hear you have a new play coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Uh, so the new play that I have coming up is a play called uh, Soccer Player in the Closet, uh, written by me. It's being produced by Nothing Without a Company, uh, directed by Christopher Sylvie, and with dramaturgy by the illustrious, magnificent Hannah Greenspan, who, Hannah Herrera Greenspan, excuse me, who unfortunately couldn't join us today due to some family conversations. But um, but she sends her love, uh, and yeah, so that's getting done today. So that's opening in about a week and a half on Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day, and then actually this afternoon we have auditions for my second show in Chicago that'll be open in June. Wow, Ryan's on a roll, and we should I we should mention too that Chicago uh, that Ryan is a Chicago based. Um, playwright and theater maker. So you can catch this show, Soccer Player in the Closet, in Chicago. Yes. Uh, it'll be at Christy Webb, uh, Christy Weber, excuse me, uh, Farm and Garden, uh, located on West Chicago, kind of south of Humboldt Park. Um, and that'll be running from February 14th all the way up to about March 11th. Wonderful. So, Ryan, this podcast is all things playwriting. We love to get into like the mind of a playwright and really talk through uh, your life, basically. So kind of walk us through your life. Like, where did you grow up? Um, so I grew up in Miami, Florida. Um, my parents were both Brazilian immigrants. So they moved to upstate New York first. and uh, But my mom really hated the cold. So we all moved back down to Miami. Uh, and I grew up there for about up until I was 17. And then I went to school at Cornell University. Uh, go red. Um, go big red, excuse me. Ooh, how could I script my undergrad monitor? And then after that, I lived in New York for about four years. And then I went to grad school where I met your equally talented and amazing hosts. And um, from there, I moved to Chicago did like a three month stint in England. Um, and then Chicago has been so far been my home thus far, unless uh, really cool, fanciful things happen and change that. But, uh, but yeah, that's been, that's been my route thus far as a, as a playwright or as a person. So when were you, when um, were you first introduced to playwriting? Um, so, so I guess I should say I was first introduced to plays, um, in eighth grade. 
um, with Romeo and Juliet. So that's like some basic level. I really wasn't introduced into playwriting until I was a senior in high school. And uh, in Miami, there are these individual events competitions where we uh, compete in aspects of theater. So some people do acting like monologues or dialogues. And I was too green to do any of that. So my drama teacher, Daphne Secret, uh, suggested at the time, well, you write essays, you should try writing plays. So I wrote this really horrible play um, about actors deciding what their next production was going to be. But they each had to do it in their own style of acting. Oh, that sounds fun. It was. It was was loosely based off of six characters in search of an author by Luigi Pirandello. Um, So I got it written and... uh, it went to individual events. It did not do well. <laughs> uh, the highest compliment I was given was, well, it's a really weird play only because I don't can't think of anybody the age of 17 writing what you're writing about. Oh, that's like, a good compliment. Always a nice compliment. The other guy thought it was shit. Um, so... So I just was like, okay, well, I'll continue this in undergrad. And it was it was because I wasn't getting anything in acting that I decided I was going to try keep trying my hand in plays. And the plays that I kept writing were so sad and so weird. Um, not much has changed since then, clearly. Um, and did you but, take uh, like a playwriting class at Cornell to get I, more into it? Or? I did. I took two playwriting classes um, because that's all they had on offer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was a TA for playwriting. Um, So I took, um, it was a playwright by the name of, playwright director by the name of Beth Millis, who um, basically was just sort of teaching me sort of like the fundamentals, but also like the weird, the weirdness of what playwriting was. Um, And then I learned directing and directing had a hand on, um, teaching me how to how to write a play, and um, and yeah, that was really that was really it. And then after that, I was basically kind of self teaching myself for a bit because yeah. I wasn't I wasn't convinced that everything that I had written on playwriting had to be the be all end all. So um, I just kind of did my own thing. And then I it wasn't until Iowa where I really I don't think I've ever said this, but I don't think I really, really, truly learned about playwriting until I got to Iowa. Yeah. What can, um, what, can you point to anything in particular that you? I, I never thought in about. Iowa? I never thought about structure. I never thought about. Um, I never thought about structure. I never thought about technique. I didn't think about anything. I just did what I needed to do. Um, that some of the stuff that I was doing came from long traditions of people already doing that, like Lorca, um, like uh, like Lorca, like Vogel, like Fornes. I didn't realize that until I actually studied it in Iowa and was like, oh, well, I'm not so weird after all. And I think that was really important for me to learn um, and just to learn that these things are tools that exist and the method by which I 
create is, you know, my own method and my own process, Mm -hmm. but there are tools within my belt. And I guess I was also never learned. I also never learned to think like a dramaturg. And yeah. Could you just, um, I love what you just said. And I would, could you kind of pick an example, like a specific technique or um, from a playwright that you're, you really connected with and you're like, that's how do I apply this to my own writing? Oh yeah. So Fornes is like the big one. Um, So and Garcia Romero kind of introduced Fornes to me and to all of us really in that one workshop um but it was really it was just the idea of like guided meditations of start with a character where is this character where are you think of a memory and utilizing memory just guiding through the meditation of like who is this character who is this person now imagine an animal and now imagine that this person has the face of it, like the face of the animal and moves like the animal. What are they doing in this space? How are they crafting that? And I didn't, I didn't think about playwriting in that way. I thought about playwriting in such a, as such a structuralist. Yeah. That, that was an amazing workshop. I love that workshop. And then I kept pursuing it years later um, when I did like an independent Fortnite workshop with Migdalia Cruz and it just blew, it changed the way I thought about playwriting. It blew my process apart um, in a way where I can't, like, I like to, I look at the plays that I wrote before I took the Fornes workshop and after I took the Fornes workshop and they're markedly different. Um, in approach, in the way, in the subject matter, in the way that I wanted to approach these characters and transform them. And I thought, like, it's just, it, for me, the guided meditations and the ability to implement aspects or objects of the spirit into the work and be forced to utilize them was, I think, tra- it's, it was incredibly transformative for me. Can you point to any of those um, either process techniques you learned or... Um, in terms of actual content of the play itself that led you to write um, Soccer Player in the Closet? Um, I can't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because Soccer Player was written before Fornet's workshop. Oh, Um, interesting. But I think for me, I think part of it was there are certain sections of the play that feel like guided meditations of what I was thinking about after I graduated from grad school and then had my tonsils blow out on me and was stuck in bed for like a month and stuck and like completely depressed. And based off of that depression and like thinking about what was, what I was feeling and I was sensing in those moments that came out in soccer player, like going through the guided meditation of that or, um, utilizing like objects like a soccer ball or and putting that in there or putting in like Febreze what is Febreze or a glowing jar at one point of like what what is this glowing jar why are we doing this and or you know inputting those in the editing process to try to rejuvenate the play in some way because um I hadn't really like I wrote the play in 2015 and I didn't touch it until three years later. 
when I was asked to, when they wanted to produce it. And I was like, what? I have to touch this play again? And it was a completely different person from those three years. I'd gone to therapy. I'd gone, you know, and now I have to go back into this really dark world that I was living in and find a way to make sense of it. So then the play ended up turning into the play ended up turning less into a depression play and more into a sibling play, which I wasn't expecting. Um, or like just tweaking several things or rejiggering scenes or writing those scenes by hand, which now I do a lot of my playwriting now is first done by hand mm-hmm. um, before I even transcribe it into a screen. Um, because for me, it's, it's, it's useful to not censor myself and to think in multiple directions, which in a way a piece of paper can do that a page on a computer screen or a Microsoft word document or final draft doesn't allow me that sort of freedom to think in the myriad of, in the myriad ways that I can think of. Do you think it was always a sibling play, but you're just at a different time you're, you're a different person with a different lens that you're looking at it. I think looking back at it, mm-hmm. I definitely felt, I definitely f- can see the sense of it now. Cause I mean, the way I got to this play was actually through my brother. Um, my brother was playing FIFA and we were getting a high and I was watching it and I was listening to like the weird sexual innuendos that were going on between him and his friends <laughs> and feeling really weird about it. But then I kept thinking like, I have to turn this into a play. And then when I revisited it, it a lot of the relationships kind of, there are two characters who are like a brother and sister in the play. And I, I thought a lot back to, I remember actually, you know what? I remember editing this one scene and thinking when my brother had confronted me because he's like, you never were really a brother. And I wasn't, I was, I was more of his co-parent. I was like third co-parent to my parents who didn't know what to do with Chris. I was relatively easy. I was just a depressed kid who was closeted and followed everything to the letter. Now they just don't know what to do with me. Um, But my brother was just like a wild child, super rebellious, wasn't into his studies. And they expected me to be that disciplinarian in a way that they couldn't. And, you know, my, my relationship with my brother to some extent has been like relatively tarnished as a result of it. And I found myself having to go back and try to rectify that. And it was really, it was really hard. It was really emotionally difficult to, for me to go back and try to reconcile that because, because I got it. And so this play became an acknowledgement of like, really don't acknowledge me as like acknowledge me as a person and as someone who's related to you and not someone you just have to deal with, that you have to compete with, that you have to, you know, best. It wasn't about, it became not about that anymore. And I think the play became more, it became more coherent um, as a result of tapping into that sort of relationship and that past and those meditations that I had, I had to undergo in order to get closer to the script. That's really That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of our plays, if you really like dig down deep into them, they're about our families, mm-hmm. you know, there's a way in which you can never really get away from that. I think. I mean, 
Yeah, I, I, I just, it was weird. I initially, I thought this play was about my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this play really turned into like the dad is just, just tertiary. It was really about, it was really about, it was really about my brother and, mm-hmm. and the sibling relationship, the difficult sibling relationships we have when, when you're queer and you don't want to know what to do with it or you're away and you don't want to know what to do with it and you're like not part of the family but you are um this sort of in-between state you have and being not just you know sibling but parent all in one and friend all in one shot and how difficult it is to tease that ryan can you talk a little bit about um what draws you to playwriting as opposed to other forms of writing and, and maybe along those lines of, um, you know, as you try to understand sibling relationships or family relationships or romantic relationships or friends, like, you know, through your writing, is there something that playwriting allows for that you can't get anywhere else? I think there's something about the liveness and the tactileness of theater um, I always like to think of theater is for me, theater is incredibly sacred. Um, it's holy ground. So for me, look, if you can get a bunch of people to come into a stupid building and like, if you get a hundred people to come into a building, that's a miracle in and of itself. A hundred people can't do yeah. crap. <laughs> it's like hurting. It's like, it's like hurting cats. Um, it is kind of like church in a way. It is. And it really and is. It, and I think because because I grew up in the church, for me, this was the closest way to capture that feeling of communion mm-hmm. um, with queerness and and culture and this sort of hybrid culture, this intersectional culture of queerness and Latinidad and mental illness and the weird and the holy and the magical in a way that for me, film always has this incredible distance where in terms of theater, there's something very tactile about it and immediate. immediate. We're going to, I mean, I could quote Peter Brook all day, every day, (laughs) but um, that is something incredibly like it sticks at the heart in a way that I mean, film. yeah, sure. Films make me cry all the time but i also know i can step away from films and you know i can step away from that and think oh well that's a lovely sort of sitting in in terms of theater where i have to actually wrestle with it it's like wrestling with an angel um and you hope you come out on top or you hope you provide enough of an experience where i like like for me for me theater feels super ritualistic and it feels enough like church where I mean, maybe it's the kind of theater that I like to write where it's like, I've, I like the kind of theater where it's like the weird can happen. And I want to transport people to a place where there is a realm of possibility in the living. And I, I think it's the, the holiness of it is, is really what I gravitate toward. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I completely Thank agree. You. Thank you. I just pulled that out of my butt. <laughs> <laughs> So a lot of our listeners are, we're like, Ooh. are probably <laughs> they're everywhere, Brian. Um, they're 
they're under the floorboards. Are like first time playwrights. There might be first time playwrights. So, what advice would you give to our writers who have never written a play, and how can they start? Oh my god, um, I get this classic question all the time. Um, start with start with what's really important to you. Um, I usually I would tell my students at one point that like sure you want to do like a boy and girl thing in a drama fine cool that's that's fine that's fine it's your truth you live it um i always like to think of like like what's really pressing to you what's really magical what do you want to reveal about the world as opposed to telling us like telling at us what the world is supposed to be because i don't find that very useful um and then you just get a lot of plays about screaming matches um, but I think starting with what do you want to unpeel and unravel about the world and explore and wrestle with. And for me, I say, great, you hold on to that and you research the absolute crap out of it. Just research, like read, read, watch films, watch other plays, read other plays, read essays, go to a museum, go to do whatever you can to really like suss this out, make a Spotify playlist for all I care, which is what I do. Um, like, do you really, have a playlist for each one of your plays? I certainly do. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's really, it's really amazing. It's like, it's part of my process. Like I have to do a Spotify playlist for every play that I write because I think it's, it's essential. Um, what if, if I don't Spotify do, went out of business? What would you do? I used to do it with iTunes. What if <laughs> iTunes went out of business? <laughs> if iTunes went out of business, you CD. I would burn CDs like old school. I would have to get a better wow. laptop. Nothing will stop you. <laughs> nope. That's commitment. Um, but just to get a good sense of like, and I would, I, I, I used to do this with video when I was like trying to write my own video games as a kid. Um, I would just like, just, I would keep notebooks upon notebooks upon notebooks of all my ideas and plans and research and notes and notes and notes and notes and notes, and notes until um, I felt like I could not keep this thing inside my body anymore. And I just write and there are no rules and you can have a skeleton of an outline and that's fine. I operate with a skeleton of an outline. I never stick to it, but, and you just write and you just write on paper like you could write on a computer screen too. Fine. I, I think it makes you more liable to censor. And at this point, it, particularly early on in the playwriting, you shouldn't be censoring. You should be letting loose. So you mean like self censorship? Oh you're yeah. About. Like if you're that writing they, on a computer, you're more tempted to just um, what? Like cut yourself off? Too yeah. Soon. The delete button is really convenient. Delete. You yeah. just press the button as opposed to when you're on a page, you have to expend a lot more energy, not just writing, but editing and deleting. You have to cross off. You have to crumple. You have to tear pages out. You have to crumple them. There's something, there's a, there's a visceral consequence mm-hmm. to what you are writing. So it behooves you to write everything you need to write. And then you can worry about it later and and you just write and you write and it doesn't have to make sense 
but you write and you write and you write. And then after you've written all of it, when you feel like you're out of a good place, let it go. And you let it go for like, I usually let a play go for like months. You mean don't uh, look at it, don't touch it. Don't look at it, don't touch it. I usually let it go for about like a week, two weeks, a month. And then I come back to it or like I'll read, I'll take a walk. I'll, I'll be inspired elsewhere. They'll mm-hmm. force me to be like, oh, but I have to go back to this play because now there's this new thought that I want to put in. I'm working on the play right now that's behaving like that where it's like I thought I wrote the play. I took my break. I, every week-long break I take becomes like, oh, I have to go back in and like fill in the blanks of the thriller. I have to go back in and and really like it has to be all killer songs now. I have to go back in and it's nice to have to go back into the fountain to, to the well and refill yeah, and recolor this world. So that all of a sudden you're not painting by numbers. You're really crafting and tweaking and making your own thing. And, and I think it's also important for right. First time writers to understand this is a process and you always like the more you write, the more your voice comes out um, so try not to be, I mean, you can emulate people's voices. I personally don't think that's really helpful, but, um, but eventually you, you find a way into writing a play that is a play or a series of plays where they are in your own voice and they are your own points of view and they are, they are of you. And it's incredibly powerful. No one can take that away. Um, but you have to just keep writing and keep writing and write in a variety of media, like test yourself, really push yourself to those limits. That's good advice. Mm-hmm. Thanks. You should teach a class, Ryan. Yeah, you that's should teach really a class. Good. Yes, except I'm just not going to adjunct. That's that's horrible. Like, <laughs> you're, like I, I, I refuse to work for beans. Yeah. Especially when beans make my digestion system go out of whack. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so, but, but yeah, I would love to teach if someone would hire me, but you know, in this economy, I guess I'll work my Bruce Wayne job and it's fine for now. So Ryan, I have another question for you. Do you, how often do you submit to conferences and development opportunities? What's that like? Um, and how do you handle rejection? That's a topic that is on all of our minds all the time, I think. So, so this past year, I did something very different and I didn't apply anywhere. Wow. That's a radical choice. It is because I got sick of being rejected. I don't handle rejection very well. Um, it's why I go to therapy. Um, at a certain point, I started realizing that Playwriting for me was a process, not just for myself, but with a group of people in the room and me submitting to all these places who that thought that they had the right answer to my play was doing me no favors. Mm -hmm. So what I ended up doing was like, I decided to stop. I decided to stop. I just stopped stopped being so servile. And I was just like, you know what? These people need a break from me. I want to pursue my own projects right now where I can at least be happy. And let me do that. I've had a better time working on a play 
in preparation for abduction than I ever have in like a, like readings at Great Plains, which I've never been to. Um, but that's just the way. That's just the way my my work doesn't. I, for example, I hate readings of my work. I hate readings of my work mostly because it doesn't make sense to an audience. A reading is a is a tricky kind of animal, isn't it? It's an incredibly it's like, tricky. There are certain plays that work really well in a reading setting. Yeah, my plays don't. My plays suck at re- as readings. My plays, it's like to get the full effect, you need to produce it, and the reason why is because I. I, as a playwright, like to think of things visually as well as sonically, like it's a whole experience. And so if you can't picture it, then it becomes a problem. And I remember I did a reading of a play called Desire in a Tiny House, which is now going to get a production uh, in June. And the reading of it was so, well, we did a reading, it was fine, but the audience just did not get it. They were just like, and Sam, you were there. <laughs> yeah, I was the dramaturg. Yeah, it was it, like they just I love that like, play. What do you think about the play like that you felt the audience didn't get? I I just don't think they got the visuality of it. They're like, or the sense of time um, and how time operated in this play. Whereas when you see it on its feet, um, it's like a the play is like a pop up book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm of a play. So there's like, like wonderful element of magic and time. Like you have to have an intermission because there's so tonal, such tonal differences in the two acts. And like in the sense of time, there's a floridness to it that we can't quite broach in a reading that feels much more colored in inside of a, that feels much more colored in, inside of a production mm-hmm. and like and people were like rejecting it left and right where it's like oh it's a really nice idea but it's too conceptual it's like oh fuck you're conceptual <laughs> you know i'm sorry i'm cursing by the way but um it's just you know it's like theater is not meant to be a reading i'm so sorry theater is not meant to be a system of readings where nothing goes anywhere I don't find Although I will say, I will say, I've seen some really incredible readings in my I will life say that, that I will felt admit that. just as alive as, you know, as certain other productions. And so, but I think you're right that there are some plays that, that lend themselves really well to readings and other plays just don't work. And so sometimes I wonder whether um, as playwrights we're almost being we're kind of unconsciously steering ourselves towards writing plays that, that work well as readings because so many plays get their start as readings, you know? Because that's, because that's the pipeline, right? That's the system. That's the, that's the institutional system by which plays are to be produced. You have to start as a reading and then maybe they'll consider it. Maybe they're not. And then maybe they'll give you a bunch of notes that contradict the last reading you had. And then, but I will also say, I think, mm-hmm. you know, institutions put a lot of thought into like, well, how, how much resources do we have and mm-hmm. how many people do we want to support? And so there's, there's always going to be a trade-off, but oh, I think yeah. there's a lot of benefit to saying, well, we can, 
put up, you know, 20 readings of plays by 20 playwrights, you know, instead of doing one production. Mm -hmm. So let's do that because that way, you know, we're getting all those stories. We're, we're supporting all those different stories. And so I don't think it has to be just like one or the other has value. Right. Yeah. I agree. I, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think it was just more of my experience. It's just mm-hmm. not been that. <laughs> um, but I think, and I'll, I'll never forget it because I think, I think I was talking to Sharon Bridgeforth, who's a phenomenal playwright and Sharon's work is unlike anyone else's work. Yeah. Like you look at Sharon Bridgeforth's work and it's like, like this incredible. is not this is not reading level work. This is this is clearly active, like active devising esque wor- poetic work mm. that really needs to move. I think there's a certain kind. Like I like to think of th- like there are theater plays that talk, and there are theater plays that move. Mm-hmm. And theater plays that move just don't like they're difficult to serve. Like, I, I think about Stray. And Stray is a play that I wrote. It's it's like a puppet play, um, but it's also like partially in Portuguese and in English. And in a reading, it's really confusing because a you don't get the sense of performativity of that of Portuguese and like the feel of the puppet doing unimaginable things. Um, that you would, uh, like you don't get the sense of like the violence and the brutality of what that play can be, um, you know, reading as you would a potential production where it's like, whoa, I can give you a taste of the imagination, but but that taste of imagination can be really distancing um, and sometimes unfulfilling and confusing because you just keep tweaking it about as a say as opposed to say like no instead of having to think about it i want you to actually do it do it and see what comes out of it mm-hmm. um which means like and i've kind of accepted this about myself um going back to the original question that i think as a playwright it just my route into production is just a little more difficult so for me um making the choice to not apply to these reading intensive uh, institutions was a choice because I knew that a lot of my work just wasn't going to get accepted. So I might as well spend more of my much better time applying to residencies where I could be freer to develop new work and just to write it and then come back to Chicago and like really work with a group of people that I know and trust like Hannah um, like, um, like the dramaturg for Shocker Play in the Closet, or um, with other director friends or actor friends like Spencer Davis at Broken Nose or Topher or Leonet, and um, or with my friend, my folks at Semiedo like Nelson Rodriguez and Isaac Gomez and Nancy Garcia Losa, um, or with like Olivia Lilly at Prop Theater where, um. See, there's a personal relationship. Yeah, but that makes all, a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and I think that's the real that's a real power of playwriting. That I, I mean, like older playwrights ask me, it's like, "Well, how are you so famous?" I'm like, "Girl, I'm not famous." <laughs> I'm, you are famous, Ryan. I 
but I'm not, I'm not famous. When people ask me like, what's your secret? It's like you go where, which is another tip that I have for writers, like go where you're invited. Someone invites you somewhere, you go, mm-hmm. you go and just, you participate and you go and you watch the show. You make a few friends, get a few cards. Maybe it's not the series of, it's like, I used to be so, there were two player friends that we know um, who I remember uh, going down to Miami, they were like networking machines and I could not be that person. And I think for me, it was a long time because it was, uh, for me, the reality check for me was realizing that I, I know how to do this for myself because for myself, I just like making friends and being like a beagle. Like, <laughs> I just, I just like being present and helping people out however I can so that in a sense eventually like one of the highest things Kyle Whalen who's uh who is uh, the literary manager now at Commission Theater um there was something that he told me um he emailed me he's just like I just want to read more of your work and I was like sure here's all like here's like 12 plays that I have um in various degrees of of uh you sent yeah. him you sent him all like all twelve of your plays. Yep. <laughs> One time. <laughs> hey, awesome. he wanted it. Um I, I mean it was just yeah. It, it was just like well it's like so I talked to Marina Bergenstock and Marina, I mean Sam and Sarah and I all know Marina and love Marina. A director um, who went to Iowa for graduate she, school. Director Devisor, she's amazing. Um and she, I mean, I loved working with her because for me, like she got me, she got where I was going. And even if she didn't know where I was going, she was willing to work together to make that happen. I think for me, that's why I look at it in terms of a director and as a co- an artistic collaborator. And Kyle, when he was reading all these 12 plays, he like, he said something in email was just like, I don't know of any other playwright who writes in your voice. I don't know of any other playwright who writes the way you do. And for me, I'm going to not get emotional. (laughs) Um, Get emotional. Just go for it. That's beautiful to hear that from somebody. For me, that was, for me to this day, is the highest compliment everyone, anyone has ever given me. Um, about my work. And I think it's just, I think it's the strength of, of any playwright where I can see a playwright show and be like, that's them. Mm-hmm. That's them. And it makes perfect sense. That is their voice. How beautiful it is in the world to have someone with that unique voice in the world. And I think that about, I think that about your Sarah's work. And I think that about Sam's work. I was going to say when we were at Iowa, we used to joke about, this the special blend of humor and pain that Sarah Cho writes oh my God. <laughs> writes in her plays. And um I and, still think about waiting for Mr. Rogers all the time. There will be I still an think about that play. For certain plays and we'll call them Choish. <laughs> just that horrible like just that it's it's funny, I just watched the favorite last night. And I kept thinking, it's like, ah, oh, this reminds me of Sarah Cho so much. <laughs> Just like that blend of like humorous and cruel. <laughs> and ultimately like hits you in a way where it's like, ah, oh, 
it's so like it's so venomous and sad (laughs) it's so funny that you guys say that because like i i for me it's i i still don't see what you guys see like i don't see it and i don't think you should and i don't think any playwright should the minute (laughs) a playwright sees that i think is a loss of humility um, well, if you or if you become too self aware and then you try to do it consciously, it kills it. Do you think? I what was it? It was Nelson Rodriguez who told, who was like then artistic director of Pride Films and Plays, and now he's just an amazing friend. Um, who like was just like what I like about your work is like like oh god, what did he say? It was just like. He said all these adjectives about my work. And I was just like, that's so funny you say that because I don't think that about my work at all. Like I just, and they're like, and he asked me, how would you describe it? It's like, I don't know. I don't know if I can other than like, other than like, it's queer. I know that. Um, And it's bittersweet. I know that because that's generally how my plays end. Um, And for me, it's like, it's like, nerdy at times and like and he said he's just like a lot of your characters are so self-aware and all they want to do is belong Aww. and i think uh god i'm gonna get emotional again god damn it um <laughs> i i mean i mean that's because it's an extension of my own struggle like as a queer Brazilian American, formerly evangelical, not so much anymore. Who's like this extrovert, but uh, for some depressed social anxiety. And, and it's for me, like that's, that's the beautiful thing about this work is, is I don't, I don't see it. Like I can, I guess I can see some of it, but I don't see if that's what people are taking away cool great i don't know what people are taking away but you're not it's not like you're doing it on purpose no i don't like it's yeah it's 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 not a prescription for me i don't i don't like theater to be a prescription i don't like anything that i write to be a prescription i like it to be an experience not a prescription well that's a good that's a good um saying (laughs) with us i like that can that be on like a book of playwrights yeah, an experience, not a prescription. I like that. It it has to be because it's a process, and I think the more we delve on that, the the, impor- the more important it is to really hone in on that. And it's just, um, yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, yeah. So I like my work is a lot of things, and I think everyone's work should be a lot of things. Um, I think there are some playwrights who like have their their brand. Um, I think my brand. I don't know. I, I think I have a consistent brand, but like I, I would rather have audiences tell you what the brand is as opposed to me saying like this is the kind of thing. I think for me, the closest thing that I've always wanted that I've always thought of is my brand would be um, plays that tend to be language plays. Mm-hmm. And that they are really about emotional queer experiences of not belonging, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. that are just or moving or finding finding a way to belong or moving towards belonging in some yeah. way. Don't you think? 
moving towards like community or moving towards like, um, I keep thinking it's weird that I think about this right now. Like I think about when I was growing up, I used to listen to a lot of Christian pop and there's like Michael W. J. Michael w. Smith's like, um, place in this world. That's what the name of the song was. And I go back to that. I, I'm working on another play. Eventually I hear the huff. <laughs> um, uh, that like, so it's a difficult play because it's about my mom. It's about cleaning. Oh, cool. And I, so I'm coming up with my Spotify playlist. I was like, what can get me to that place of my mom and my memories? And the closest thing I could come to was going back to Christian pop. And I would come back to that song all the time. It's like, there is a reason why I really love this song. And to this day, I may have like distanced myself from the church and everything, but for that, that's the religion. That's the religiosity of my characters and the religiosity, the spirituality of my characters is people just want to find places in this world and, and it's hard and to do that. And for me, that's, that's what I like talking about. I think too, when, when audiences go to the theater to see plays, it's because they're looking for, some kind of community or a story that resonates with them or, mm. you know, they're, they're, all of us are looking for something some looking way for in which we belong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think home. that's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Saw a musical at um, the Amundsen Theater through the Center Theater Group. Um, it was a musical based on the life of The Temptations. <gasps> the Dominique Morisot one? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. I heard it was so good. It, it was, I like I knew Temptation, the music and everything, but like going into the theater, and everyone around me is you know a little older than me, so mm-hmm. <laughs> and it grew. It looks like I obviously grew up in the times of Temptation, but like they, I've never been in a theater like the size. It was like, it was like a really big theater where everyone was up dancing, clapping, and just oh, like that's so cool. Hearing for, for all the stories about the Temptation, all the members and. And the laughter, I, I've never felt that, like, energy in so long. And I was like, you can't get this feeling from a movie theater. You know, like, right. you can't get this, like, at home watching Netflix show, whatever. You can't get this feeling of just this community, you know? Yeah. And it's just, mm-hmm. like, it's just such a unique experience that I just, that's the reason why I, like, love theater. Exactly. Yeah. And Exactly. I mean, I keep thinking about that now, now that I'm working on a solo musical where it's like, how do I want to create unrequited love in an audience? Mm. And <laughs> Wait, oh, meaning man. like they love you, but you don't love them back or you love them, but they don't love you back. Yeah. More like the latter. Um, <laughs> so you're trying to make a piece where they don't love you? In a sense, but like that we're exposed to like the ugliness of them and how do we requite that? And is that like a particular mental illness we have and that we are, we love, we love that kind of hate, love, hate relationship. And, um, it's just, I, it's fascinating the, the, the myriad of ways and metaphors we can, we can sort of tweak with that. And we're like, that's what's really, really engaging about, theater now is that there are especially living in chicago like the amount of 
theatrical genius that abounds in this place is is it astounds me every day um and it's it's so familial and communal and um yeah i'm blessed for it i love chicago i completely agree thank you Um, it's a good theater town yeah sarah Um, it's a good theater town (laughs) so so ryan we're coming up on the end of our time today Mm -hmm. um and we like to finish every episode with glistens which you know come from dare club um fabulous fabulous so at the end of every show, we talk about things from the week that we want to hold on to. Um, it could be anything. It could be music or something in the news or wintry weather. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess I'll go first. Um, my glisten from this week is, so I, I joined a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, um, through the winter. And so, you know, it's like a lot of root vegetables. And so every week I get this bag of like rutabaga, you know, or carrots or kohlrabi. And it's, it's, you know, it's kind of hard for me because I want to make what I want to make and, you know, but I'm like, no, Sam, this is what you signed up for. (laughs) You have to find a way to use this vegetable. Um, but I started to think about, approaching art that way like you know we're given a certain set of experiences or a certain kind of material and and we transform it into art um and there's some choosing involved but i think maybe we fool ourselves into thinking that there's more choosing than there actually is Mm. so that's my glisten my glisten um yeah go ahead go ahead sarah (laughs) uh Friday, I did an open mic. I went to I did stand up. Yes, uh, so cool. Yes. It was my like first in like two, three years or something, and I went in because um, I'm outside of playwriting, outside of like sketch writing. I'm trying to write write a memoir, and oh my gosh, I want to read it. <laughs> and so I was like, oh to help me kind of just sort of hash things out or like try to um, help me with rewriting or a moment or, or generate ideas. I've been like trying to do an open mic and then have like a joke. So I did that and it was very, very before going on stage, I was like nervous, like so nervous. But as soon as I got on stage, I was just like, it was so fun. Like I just, it was just so fun and telling stories about my family and making fun of them. It's so great. Would you ever invite anyone from your family to come see you do an open mic? Um, no. <laughs> That's fair. I don't invite my parents to come see my plays. <laughs> Mostly because I would be disowned really quickly. <laughs> well, that's great. I hope you keep doing that. Open micing. Yeah. Um, what about you, Ryan? What's your glisten? What's my glisten? Um, so my glisten... It's probably the wintry weather because I've had to deal with it. Um, the negative 54 degrees and having to come into work. Oh, it was really, no. It, really brutal in Chicago. And, it sounded and then, terrible. 
And because of the nature of my job, so I come into work and I've been, I guess the the big lesson has been, I've been telling a lot of people, health, working in healthcare is a really great way to learn about class. Yeah. Well, you should privilege. explain what your job is. Uh. So my job is scheduling patients at a hospital network that shall remain nameless. <laughs> but basically, you you take their calls, right? And you I take their calls and I schedule the patients, or I try to get them in touch with their doctors, or I try to get them their refill medication refills. It's a call center job, but it pays well, good insurance. Um, but the problem that I particularly ran into was when the cold weather happens. Um, like people cancel left and right, it's fine. But it's the way people are talked to. And there's something about when people talk to you online and troll you online, it's a particular kind of like, okay, they're hiding behind a screen. When people talk to you over the phone and you can hear their... I literally had to tell someone, I don't appreciate your belittling tone. I literally had to say that to someone. And... I I keep coming I it's weird. I keep coming to this fact of like is this how you were raised um to basically treat people and if healthcare is such a a universal right for everybody it should be at least um how people try to game the system or mistreat people and spread their own pain and privilege onto others as if it's infectious. And for me, that I was just thinking about like how systematic of a problem does it have to be where people who are like, well, I just want to like my doctor will accommodate me. Well, can you please push someone out of their spot so I can take it? Um, because they have money and because they have privilege. It's something that's really sticking with me and also causes me gallbladder pain on a regular basis. <laughs> so, oh, no. so, and, and was it exacerbated by the cold weather, do you think? It was exacerbated by the cold weather, I think. And I think it's just like the psychosomatic nature of illness that I, I think I've been thinking a lot about it and it's probably going to show up in the play at some point, um, probably sooner rather than later, but it's just, it's been living inside me for a bit of that. We need to really talk about, it's not just talking about healthcare, but also just adequate treatment of people mm-hmm. as if people are human beings. I literally ha- remember having someone tell me, Oh, like I like to speak to a real person. Well, girl, I'm a real person. Wow. She's like, no, but you know what I mean. Like, but then they want me to be a robot when it's convenient. So, it's it's a real. There's a dissonance of humanity, um, in in the worlds that in the accessible greater when the more accessible worlds that we are creating for ourselves, and I think it it merits it merits deeper conversation because that intersects with race and privilege um, and gender and, um, and sexuality. And it's, it's definitely mulling in my brain at some point. So it's, it's definitely living in me. So that's my glisten as distroubling as that glisten <laughs> might be. 
that's that was a, <laughs> that's deep. That that's was some deep stuff. Question. It's because I'm an Aquarius, duh. <laughs> well, Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time uh, t- and recording with us. This was so insightful. I try. <laughs> oh, thank and you all so for having good. me. You're oh, wonderful. No, thank you. You're so wonderful. You. And you have so many good tips for all of our listeners. I take it from Dare Club. It's all from Dare Club. We need to have Dare Club on this show. How do we? Yeah, we should. We should. <laughs> um, but but thank you all for having me. I really appreciate. It. I love you all. It's 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 always. I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> we miss you, Ryan. We miss you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I love Ryan so much. He's so that, fun to talk to. He. Everything he said really blew my mind. Like I, I everything he said, it was just like yes. I was just writing down. Like that's such a good note. That's such a good idea. Like that's such a like his his experience is with writing. It's just so physical. Like even you could tell yeah. how he wrestles with his writing. Yeah, and he's very thoughtful about um, you know process and mm-hmm. how much he. He's very intentional, I guess, is a good word for it. Yeah, and very generous. Like he, yeah. he's such an open. Oh, I just that's one of the things I just love about him. He's just like he's just so big and open about his feelings, and like no one is like that. Everyone is just so closed off. I know, and he's so genuine. Mm-hmm. Well, listeners, in case you can't tell, we love Ryan. He's the best. And we hope that um, today's episode, you were able to pull some useful tidbits, useful tidbits for your own, your own writing journey. Um, Thank you all so much for listening in. Uh, If you haven't, please follow us on Beckett's, Beckett's or on social media, Beckett's babies. Uh, We appreciate your reviews and if you ever any have any questions that you want us to talk about in terms of playwriting, um, you can find us on social media and let us know what your burning questions are. And we'll try to address them here. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Okay, thanks for listening. 